welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are doing a short story with our beloved Monsieur Poirot. It is The Dream. Very exciting. It's been a while since we've done a Poirot short story, hasn't it? It has. We sort of made our way through Poirot Investigates, and we decided to take some time, especially because we've had so many Poirot novels. Absolutely. But uh, we are doing The Dream because uh, we've seen a character in it recently. We have Dr. Stillingfleet. We saw pop up very tangentially in our last episode, Sad Cypress. So we thought that was an excellent opportunity to go back to Mr. Poirot in short form. This is actually a, a good segue into the publication history because this is a rare later Poirot. Most of these Poirot short stories were in the 20s, edging into the early 30s. But this is actually among the latest of the Poirots that exist. So it's not super late within Christie's life. It's 1937. But as far as Poirot short stories go, that's fairly late. So this was first published in the U.S. in October 1937 in the Saturday Evening Post, and then in the U.K. in February 1938 in The Strand. And it was subsequently collected in The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding and a selection of entrees in the U.K. in 1960. And then in the U.S. in The Regatta Mystery and other stories much earlier in 19. Right. Yeah, that collection came out very shortly after this story was actually published, which is interesting. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about our victim. Who is he, Catherine? Mr. Benedict Farley, quote unquote, that eccentric millionaire. And he, guess what? He's not an American. You might have known that from the fact that his name was Benedict. <laughs> um, you know, normally when we talk about eccentric millionaires, they always seem to be Americans with odd names. California king of cucumbers or, you know. <laughs> the sausage king of Chicago. Is there a problem? You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman. The Sausage King of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. Abe Froman <laughs> is not actually in the Christie verse. Feels like he should be. But. I know, I know. But Ferris Bueller, not so much a Christie character. But Mr. Benedict Farley, he's also the owner of Northway House in London. He's a food manufacturer. And he has a recurring dream that he will kill himself, and then apparently he kills himself. Intriguing. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about our suspects. But first, we have Benedict Farley himself, obviously, since his fingerprints are on the gun. And again, he has dreamt of killing himself, and perhaps he did. Right. Then we have Hugo Cornworthy, who is Farley's secretary, and he is the author of the correspondence that brings in Poirot. Next, we have Mrs. Farley, the widow of Benedict Farley, and she is a much younger woman. She is his second wife. Right. And then we have Joanna Farley, who's only a few years younger than the new Mrs. Farley. She's like a little resentful of her father, one could say. Next up, the aforementioned Dr. Stillingfleet, who is Farley's doctor, who it definitely likes to tell it like it is. Right, and has like an overly comfortable sense of familiarity with Poro. I mean, it's funny. The fact that this is connected to Sad Cypress kind of spoils the fact that it's not Dr. Stillingfleet, since I doubt that a doctor would be a random reference in a novel if he turned out to be the murderer. Like, hey, that Dr. Shepard recommended uh, that you should use Monsieur Poirot because he's really good. 
good. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> the worst recommendation ever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's got a lot of spunk and personality for a fairly random male medical presence in a Christie story. Then we have three unnamed doctors who have previously attended to Farley. Right. And then we also have two unnamed reporters who were waiting to speak with Farley when he killed himself or was murdered or whatever happened. Right. Well, that's a fairly robust list of suspects for a short story. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Poirot arrives at North White House at the start of this story, which is an elaborate old home tucked in between manor flats and office buildings in London. And we learn that it is owned by the incredibly eccentric millionaire Benedict Farley, who is widely known if seldom seen. His eccentricities are a bit Howard Hughesian. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine that readers, if not Christie herself, were thinking of Howard Hughes. Not that there aren't plenty of other eccentric millionaires, but he was probably the most famous, certainly in the 30s. Come in with the milk. 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 He has a 28-year-old patchwork dressing gown that he likes to wear. He subsists on a diet of cabbage soup and caviar. And he hates cats. Hates cats. Hates cats. Can you imagine (laughs) what living on a diet of cabbage soup and caviar would do to you? Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that he's not a pleasure to I mean, his, um, his, be bre- his breath alone must just be <laughs> vile. It's, just, it's a lot of salt, too. Well, you know? so much salt. I mean, maybe that's why he's seldom seen. He's, des- <laughs> he's desiccated and his <laughs> breath just smells like cabbage all the time. All right, let's, get, let's give some background here to uh, what has brought so, dear Monsieur Poirot. Poirot has been summoned by a letter requesting his presence, which, as we said before, was drafted by Farley's secretary and the butler at the door very unusually requests to see the letter. He knows who Poirot is. You know, it's very clear why Poirot is there, but he demands to see this letter and then he brings Poirot up to not Farley's office, but the secretary's rooms, which is apparently not entirely uncommon, but he knocks on the door, which is something that surprises Poirot, and Poirot's a little bit put off by it. He can observe that this butler is an excellent butler, mm-hmm. and that he does he does everything exactly as he should. And a butler, I guess I hadn't gleaned this from my years of watching Downton Abbey and Upstairs Downstairs, but a butler is never supposed to knock at the door. That is just not done, but this one does. Right, and then he announces very deliberately Poirot. Right, it's all just so gauche. Were you shocked and horrified, Catherine? (laughs) Agatha told me to be shocked and horrified. We're gauche Americans as it is. (laughs) So actually, the fact that we weren't shocked is proof of how shocking it truly was. I mean, (laughs) right. I'm like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you knock on the door? (laughs) Apparently, Poirot deems this to be gauche, and he's going to deem a bunch of other stuff gauche very shortly, because what happens next? Poirot enters the room only to find that it is rather oddly lit and that the man himself, Benedict Farley, is secluded in a corner of the room with the light pointed outwards toward his guest, toward Poirot, so right in his face, Mm -hmm. which makes it very hard for Poirot to see Benedict Farley or anything because he has a light shining in his face. So Poirot is able to observe that he's wearing the famous patchwork dressing gown as well as his incredibly heavy glasses. He's known to wear heavy glasses. Right. And he proceeds to tell Poirot a tale. Uh, Because as it turns out, prior to sending the letter to Poirot, he has seen three different Harley Street doctors, none of whom who have helped 
with this problem because you see his problem is a recurring dream, a dream that he has every single night. Every night he dreams that he sits at the desk in his office and then at 20 minutes past three, he opens a second drawer on the right of his desk, takes out the the revolver that he keeps there, he loads it, he walks to the window and he kills himself and then he wakes up. So Farley is asking for Poirot's help because he is concerned that perhaps he's been hypnotized. Or that he's just in Inception. <laughs> we both thought of Inception immediately when Absolutely we were reading this right so. now. Yeah. I'm sure that Inception has come up before. I believe it had to do with fictional Jap versus real life Jap in the Tommy and Tuppence verse as opposed to the Poirot verse. Yep. <laughs> We did yeah, that. Yeah, you know, we roll deep here. <laughs> yes, we do. So Poirot is, shall we say, both bewildered and rather irritated. He also thinks that Farley is a mountebank, and he's appalled by how stagey and obnoxious he is, and rather disappointed because he, like the rest of the world, you know, knows that Benedict Farley is this successful man. He has built this business from the ground up, and he thought that there would be more to him than this stagey presence that he finds before him now, and he, he just wants none of it. So he basically is like, dude, I don't know how I can help you, and Farley dismisses him, but not before asking for that letter back after the butler asked him for the letter. Poirot, of course, put it back in his pocket. pocket. And Poirot gives him a letter out of his pocket, but then after the fact realizes he mistakenly gave him a letter from his laundress. He only realizes that when he gets to the door. And we are told via the narration that Farley did look at the letter. Right. So he then goes back and gives Farley the correct letter, takes back his laundress's letter, and leaves the room. He goes home. He, like, takes a long walk because he's Mm -hmm. befuddled, which is, of course, a rarity for our dear Poirot. Oh, mon dieu. I know. Then, of course, he is almost immediately called by Dr. Stillingfleet because guess what? Farley's killed himself. Well, I mean, he did mention Harley Street, so you know the rule. Yeah. When a character in a Christie story mentions Harley Street, they dead. Exactly. Well, and if a character in a Christie story writes a letter to Poirot, (laughs) they're probably also dead, which is actually why Poirot gets called, because Dr. Stillingfleet is at the house along with Inspector Barnett, um, Mrs. Farley, Joanna Farley, and Hugo Cornworthy, and the only reason they called Poirot is because they found the letter to Poirot on Farley's desk. And if someone has just arranged a meeting with Poirot, then winds up dead... Well, <laughs> you know. That, that might seem to indicate some murder is afoot. Right. All right. So Poirot reveals the story of the dream and discusses it with the family members. Mrs. Farley says that she had heard of it, that her husband spoke of it with her as well, but that she dismissed it. Sillingfleet's never heard anything about it. He says he's never been consulted. Joanna is totally unaware. And Cornworthy, the secretary, is also unaware. Then Poirot investigates, as he does, the room in which Farley died, which is not, again, just a reminder, not the room that Poirot is in since he was in the secretary's room. And this room has an open window looking out at a plain brick industrial wall. Poirot glances out the window and notices something black on the ground right beneath the window, and he seems to come to some sort of a conclusion based on this. And when he returns to the drawing room, he, of course, knows the answer and is just about to tell us all about the world as it actually is. But luckily, this is a Poirot short story, so we've got ourselves a little puzzle mystery here, don't we, Catherine? Yes, we do. We have a few clues. 
Yay! Yeah, and some of them are, let's just say, very old favorites. <laughs> yes, it's like the greatest hits. Yep, I would say so. <laughs> Sweat into the oldies. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the first clue is, of course, the letter, right? It's immediately made out in the story to be sort of a weird thing. And it's not unusual that Poirot would be sent a letter. He sent them all the time. But there's such this heavy insistence on it from all parties involved. And on top of that, there is the very deliberate point that Farley insists Poirot give the letter back. So, I mean, our deduction here is why is it so critical exactly that Poirot bring the letter? You know, and we can read this in two ways. Either Farley wants to ensure that Poirot is not going to show the letter to anyone else, or Farley himself needs the letter for some reason. And that is inherently suspicious. Yeah, this clue is great because it's almost like a laying the groundwork clue. Right. It kind of starts pointing us in the right direction, but it certainly isn't getting us to the ultimate solution. It's not even pointing anywhere. It's just lifting us up out of the muck of the world as it seems to be and starting to reach toward the heavens of the world as it actually is, where everything is just crystal clear and and the truth reigns supreme. Getting a tear in my eye. Uh, And speaking of crystal clear, Kemper, what's the next clue? Yes. This is becoming more of a old standby than the actor clue, <laughs> which is maybe like the only clue that we don't have here. There are no actors in the well, story, although, sadly. although, let's just say... There may be some acting yes, in this story, correct. but there are no actors. Correct. There are no professional actors. So lighting, clue number two is lighting. And we've come across this so many times, most recently, in and then there were none. And if Christie specifies what the lighting situation is, particularly if it in some way impedes someone's sight, then we should be extremely wary and just question everything that we are, quote unquote, seeing here and not really trust our senses. This is not a sly clue here. Christie makes a big point of telling us that the lighting in Poirot's interview with the light shining in his face and masking Benedict Farley is just really weird and off. And we should definitely note that. So the deduction there is that Farley doesn't want Poirot to see something about his appearance. Right. This is another clue that should just make us extremely suspicious of this interview and everything surrounding this interview between Farley and Poirot. Something's up here. Well, and it gets obviously worse because clue number three, I would say, combines both clue number one and clue number two because Mm -hmm. the clue is the heavy glasses and not being able to see that Poirot provided the wrong letter. This is strange on its face, right? Because even if Farley has terrible vision, well, that's why he's wearing the super thick lenses. So he should obviously have noticed at the letter, which, you know, as we just said, has apparently huge value to him, is not the right letter. But he obviously doesn't notice this until Poirot himself has to say something. So the deduction here, again, it's either one of two things. Either we can deduce that Farley is apparently just completely blind. Pretending to be able to see, even though he can't see or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we could, I guess, go that route. Pulling a Betty Davis in... um What's the movie? Oh, Dark Victory. Ed! There's a storm coming. What? It's getting dark about a minute. We'll have to take our raincoats with us. Suppose it'll rain cats and dogs and ruin all our nice bulbs. Look how it's clouding up. It's getting darker every second. It's funny, I can still feel the sun on my hands. Ed! Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I've seen Dark Victory too many times. You do. If the ladies' gardening group can adjourn their meeting for a moment, I've got some news. We're not going to Philadelphia, we're going to New York. Just write a wire over the telephone. Come on in, I'll show you. 
Come on, Judy. Come on. Not a word. It's a good one. It's a good one. But presuming he's not Buddy Davis in Dark Victory. A presumption I am not. <laughs> You're not willing to make? I, no, I'm not prepared to make that presumption ever. <laughs> that anyone is not Betty Davis in Dark Victory, but continue. If you can't see out of the glasses, then either the prescription's wrong or what would be the alternative? The prescription is too strong. Like they're not your glasses. They're not your glasses. Right. And by the way, and this is subtextual at best in the story, but did you get the feeling that Poirot, his quote unquote accident of giving him the laundress's letter was deliberate deliberate, that even at that early stage, he it's not written that way. Like there's no, but come on. It's actually a really interesting point because of course I thought that I thought that he'd done it deliberately, but then when he leaves the house, he is actually confused. confused. So it's not written that he does it deliberately but like my instinct my instinct on reading it was oh well Poirot has done this deliberately because we know him so well maybe it's just that he on an instinctual level his instincts are so strong that he knew he had to test that even though on a cognitive gray cell level this is more Poirot's very rarely spoken of medulla oblongata moment <laughs> as opposed to the uh, gray cells of the uh, cerebral cortex you know, he's his brain his brain is strong all around, so maybe his instincts here just kicked in, even though he didn't know I mean, what he was doing. Especially for a later story, you would kind of have to assume that she must have known that a reader would think that, right? I know, but there's no she she really plays it straight. There's no indication it Poirot could have gloated about it when he's doing no, his but he doesn't. Long. He do, he doesn't. I know. I guess he didn't, but it's just curious because I defy any reader of Christie reading this story to not think that Poirot on some level well, did it. Well, and on it's purpose. a little bit it's a little bit of a tell in the story because yeah. you immediately think, "Oh, well if Poirot's going to do a switcheroo with the letters, something's wrong here." I mean, obviously that's the correct assumption, but right. but if that's not intended, that's a flaw in the story. I guess it's a flaw. Yeah. But it's a flaw that I find sort of pleasing. Oh, well, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't bother me at all. I kind of liked the confusion over that in the story. I quite liked this story. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's pretty good. So clue number four, our final clue, Stilling Fleet of the Sharp Tongue, (laughs) at least as to Mr. Poirot, is Farley's physician, yet he has at no point heard the story of the dream. Nor, in fact, does anyone seem to know the identity of these three Harley Street doctors who Farley told Poirot that he called in during that odd interview. The deduction here is that either Farley really doesn't want his own physician's advice about these dreams, which seems really weird since he's wanted everyone else's advice, or maybe there are no other physicians. What what all these clues are pointing us to is that everything that happened during that interview was wrong. Yeah, something's really off. Like, we shouldn't trust Farley himself. We shouldn't trust what he was saying. We shouldn't trust anything about it. And I think once we approach it with that deep level of mistrust, we might ultimately figure out our resolution. And what is it, Catherine? Well, the solution that Poirot comes up with is pretty much the oldest in the book or Christie (laughs) books. As Bill Hader is a Stefan character would have said on SNL, this story has everything. Bad lighting. Peeps. Mysterious letters. TED Talks. Cryptic omens. Roman J. Israel Esquire. Fights over inheritance. Key fobs. The fairs. Kale chips. There's a whole lot of costuming. Roman J. Israel Esquire. (laughs) 
Oh, Stefan. I feel like Stefan would have really liked an Agatha Christie short story. <laughs> Absolutely. He would have fit right in. You could really build a New York City club around one of these. <laughs> All right. Well, you see, Mr. Poirot never met Mr. Benedict Farley. Hugo Cornworthy, the secretary, did not type the letter to Poirot via dictation. He wrote it himself. And then Mr. Cornworthy dressed up in old man makeup mm-hmm. and Farley's famous patchwork robe. As one does. Yep, as one does. He was like, okay, I'm in an Agatha Christie story, so I need to put on a costume. I need to make the lighting really bad. Yeah, use some putty on my face. Who knows? Even though it's not mentioned, maybe he was drawing on some amateur theatrical skill from his university days. We don't know. We don't. He then created some somewhat bizarre tics for the butler to abide by so as not to be seen or surprised in the room, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And he then brought in Poirot to... To be a witness to the story of the dream, which, of course, Poirot had no ability to solve. That wasn't the point. The point was that Poirot, when summoned after the fact, would be able to recount the story and provide proof that Benedict Farley actually did have this dream. Right. And then after Poirot is sent away, the rest of the plan can go into motion. So Cornworthy lured Mr. Farley to his window with a stuffed cat. Okay, here's where... <laughs> here's... The other story goes a little off the rails. This is the true flaw in the story here, and it's one that the adaptation, which we will turn it to fixes. very shortly, it fixes and fixes well. Remember when we said that Benedict Farley hates cats? Well, apparently a true hater of cats, when he sees a stuffed potential black cat on his second story window, Which, right? which by the like, way, has nothing below it. So there's, because it's noted that there's no way for anything to come up the side of the building. For anyone to climb yeah. up or anything. Yeah. So I guess he hated cats so much that he would be incensed rather than even intrigued, or maybe I guess intrigued by what appears to be a flying cat <laughs> and just put his head out the window and be like, ah, I hate cats. Where's that darned cat? Because if it was on the ledge, he wouldn't have had to put his head out the window. So where exactly... Was the cat? Yeah, it's it, this is. Didn't it remind you of murder in Mesopotamia? Remember? <laughs> yes, it did a little bit. The thing that got her to the window was the face that had been used to scare her the night before, and then this was in broad daylight. So the plan was she was going to be really mad. Yeah, when and she lean saw that the, the face window. was a fake, and lean out and be yeah. like, "Where's that face? I that know, darn so face!" Just drop the stone on her head. <laughs> At least shooting someone in the head is a little more believable. You don't need the exactitude that you do for dropping a cistern right. on someone's right, head. exactly. Regardless, um, Farley apparently has leaned out the window and then through the next window over, Cornworthy shoots him. It's noted that it's a noisy area, right? Yeah, right, of course. Well, yeah, yeah because that's the thing, because the house, Poirot notes at the very beginning, you might not even notice that there's this mansion there, because it's literally in the middle of what is now an industrialized section, basically, of London. There are, like, flats on all sides, and then industrial buildings. It's Everything has been ripped out and built up except for this old mansion that's sitting there. Right. In the adaptation, they make it more that it was a purposeful decision on his part to build his business around his home. Right. But it's a little more believable in the original that he was an early resident of this area and was one of the first major buildings and then things just grew up around him and he didn't want to leave because he's an eccentric millionaire. Right. And so nobody sees anything, right? Because mm-hmm. you know... Or hears anything. Or hears anything. Yeah. And that includes the journalists out in the hall. 
So Cornworthy wipes the gun clean, hides it between some papers and the letter to Poirot, and then he um, walks out into the hall where, of course, these journalists have been left to sit. And he says, oh, well, I'll go check to see why he hasn't brought you in. And uh, then in the office, he essentially stages a suicide scene, wraps Farley's fingers around the gun, and puts the papers on the desk where they'll be found. And why does he do this? Well, it turns out that he's actually in cahoots with Mrs. Farley, who, let's uh, remind ourselves, is the only other person who said, oh, yeah, yeah, he told me about that dream, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He's having an affair with her, and they had together planned this out to get rid of Farley and get his money because she got a sizable chunk upon his death, even though his daughter got the lion's share, yeah, right? Yeah, she gets the bulk of his estate, and he had deliberately prevented her from marrying the love of her life. Right. So really Joanna Farley has the wins. biggest, mo- well, she wins. She, she had the biggest, <laughs> she had the biggest motive, but she also, right. she definitely wins because she gets to marry the man that she's in love with. And she gets a massive fortune. And that aspect of it actually reminded me of the Sidiford mystery where it's even more clever there because the motive is money, but it's 5,000 pounds. It's like not that much money, but it's a believable amount of money, especially for a retired Colonel who doesn't have much income to murder murder someone. You know, money is often a motive for murder, but it doesn't have to be an obscene amount of money. It just has to be enough enough money to make a difference. This is a fair amount of money, but it's it's a little bit of a misdirect because when we're told how the will shakes out, the focus really is on Joanna because she gets so much more than Mrs. Farley. How much would Mrs. Farley have gotten? He left Louise, my stepmother, a quarter of a million free of tax. And there are other legacies, but the residue goes to me. Yeah, no, I mean, substantial just in comparison to the enormous amount that Joanna's going to get. How stupid was their plan? Yeah, it was pretty dumb. Of all people, why on earth would you... Bring in Monsieur Hercule Poirot. I know. What a terrible, terrible idea. Scotland Yard would have just written it off as a suicide had they not found the letter from Poirot on the desk. I know it's one of those things where it's like they had such a clever... Yeah, they overthought it. Rube Goldberging plan. They overthought it because they were like, oh, well, we need Poirot to come in and and talk about the dream because then they'll definitely know it's suicide. And it's like they would have thought it was suicide anyway because it looks like a suicide. And now you just brought in the guy who's associated with murder. So, of course, everyone assumes it's murder. And now you have the best detective in the world. Right. In the history of time. Right. Who's investigating it. Who's now now perturbed by what happened. Right. No, it's, it's terrible. It's a creative way of bringing Poirot into the story other than, oh, Mr. Poirot, there's been a murder. Can you help solve it? But it shows how limited those options are because you run into these logic problems. It's clunky. The story is very readable. I mean, I don't actually think the story is clunky. It's just that their plan is clunky. Yeah. Their plan is clunky, but the story is readable. And this is, and we've talked about this too, where these sorts of flaws in short stories are so forgivable because you haven't invested that much time or energy into it. So it's fine. And she, she gets a little loose with the rules and you would have to imagine in a novel, she would probably tighten that up. But you know, that was a little bit of our problem with death on the Nile. Like that was kind of a dumb plan too. If you're really looking at it logically, you're making your job pretty hard for yourself there to murder someone in that closed of a setting. Yeah. Well, it's requiring a lot of luck and having things not be looked at very closely. Right. But these issues, I would I would argue, are endemic to the murder mystery genre overall. It's just it's it's glaringly, no pun intended, obvious in this short story. Right. Right. 
So I guess let's talk about the adaptation, which yeah. is um, very close to the book in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, very close. to the, I mean, this is one where the original story is a bit longer than some of these other Poirot short stories, especially those earlier Poirot investigate. Some of those are so slight right. and they had to do so much invention. They didn't have to do as much here because there was a lot of oh, story we, to we hang on to. We still get a Clivexton chase scene. Of course we do. <laughs> of course we get a chase scene. In due course, the happy ending would have been achieved. A quarter of a million pounds and two hearts that beat us one. But it's at least it's on a motorcycle pursuing a man on foot. Stop him, Herbert! Stop him! What? Oh, right. We don't get that car going down the the back country road alleyway. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> and then the truck backing up. We should mention that this is the actually the last episode in the first season slash series of the show. So this is 1989 and everyone looks extremely young. I know. David Suchet is so spry and dapper. Well, he's not spry because he was never spry as Poirot, but it was noticeable to me how, how young they all looked. And this is when the series was definitely still in its what feels almost cutesy compared to those later darker seasons now. I mean, there are just so many comedic hijinks in this I know, episode. and there's so much interaction between Miss Lemon and Hastings. This is your chance. What? This is your chance to invest in a pair of home-fit real leather shoes. Oh, that's clever. Fits, but with a PH. <laughs> just return this card and our representatives will call on you. Made to measure shoes, apparently. Seem awfully reasonable. I don't suppose there are any made-to-measure typewriters in there, have they? Sorry? Ever since last Easter, I've been asking Mr. Porrow for a new typewriter. Mr. Porrow isn't mean, but he is careful. Who aren't even in the story, obviously. Of course not. And Miss Lemon is very delightful in this. Yes, she is. All she wants the entire episode is a new typewriter. It's sort of a running gag. And then the final scene of the episode... He's for you. Oh, Mr. Poirot, you shouldn't have. It's Poirot bringing this package to her that looks exactly like it has to be a typewriter. And she opens it up and it's a clock. Because Miss Lemon is the one who gave Poirot the idea that... Leaning out the window. Yeah, that Benedict Farley was leaning out the window since she has to lean out a window to get the time. What do you think, eh, Miss Lemon? It's wonderful. It's... Now... We shall have no more leaning dangerously out of the window to tell the time. Yes? It's just what I wanted. She says that she can't wear a wristwatch due to magnetism. I know. It goes into that category in the series, which is a little bit weird, that Miss Lemon has like a thing with the occult. Right. So I guess that it sort of throws her off her aura right. or something. Yeah. I think that was right. that was what I read from that. There's this scene where Miss Farley, Joanna Farley, is fencing. And he's terrified that he's going to be like stabbed, stabbed by the epic. Run through. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Monsieur Poirot. Fancy your chances. Uh, no, 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 no. Thank you very much, Mademoiselle. But uh, essentially, Hercule Poirot is uh, a man of peace. <laughs> By the way, Jolie Richardson. Very, yeah. very young Jolie Richardson. Very young. You identified a really funny exchange, too, about the product that Benedict Farley makes. Oh, about Mr. Farley. Miss Lemon says he makes pies. 
make spies? Hastings, to say that Benedict Farley makes spies is like saying that Wagner wrote semi-quavers. Are they good pies, are they? No, horrible. But there are a great many of them. <laughs> it is so delightful. I love how they capture the Poirot-Hastings relationship in those early seasons. I know. I remembered the plot of this one due, I'm positive, to the Suchet adaptation. Because I, I don't think that I actually had read the original short story. But I remembered that it was about, obviously, a dream and that the dream wasn't real. Which So I knew right away when I was reading this that Mrs. Farley had to be in on it because she was talking about the fact that he mentioned the dream to her. And I was kind of able to feel my way through what was going on. But it was because the Suchet adaptation was so good and had stuck in my mind. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's light and, you know, it has, again, that ludicrous signature kind of chase at the end. But it's charming. I think that a lot of the later episodes are wonderful, but they're wonderful in a different way than these are wonderful. Yes. There are different things to appreciate about those episodes as opposed to these episodes. It actually reminds me because I was I was just checking out the final lines of the short story, and these will come back to haunt us much, much later in this podcast. But given that this short story was being written in the late 30s, it's interesting that here's how it ends with Stilling Fleet saying to Poirot, I wonder if you'll ever commit a crime, Poirot. <laughs> I bet you could get away with it all right. As a matter of fact, it would be too easy for you. I mean, the thing would be off is definitely too unsporting. That, said Poirot, is a typical English idea. Those are the final lines. You know, I think she had something on the old noodle while she was writing this about a future novel, but we will leave it there for being now. being so oblique, but she would have written it around the same time, right? Yes. No, she was, she was working on a future Poirot novel that we will get to many moons from now, right around this time. This is one of these novels she put into a vault, so it was written much earlier than it was published, but let's not spoil we'll say, anything. Yeah, we'll say n- nothing else. And uh, with that, I think we are done with the dream. Next week, we are not going back to Mr. Poirot, but we are visiting our spooky friend, Mr. Quinn. Is he even human? We're really not sure. Nobody (laughs) is sure. Certainly not Mr. Satterthwaite. Speaking of desiccated, dried up little men. I know. So that one will be The Sign in the Sky, and that is from the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection. And then our next novel, which we will be covering after that, is a Poirot novel, and that is One to Buckle My Shoe. And so if you, like me, have a fear of the dentist, guess what? (laughs) So does Poirot. You're going to be able to exercise that fear. We're going to be able to do it together as a team. Yeah, it's going to be like a therapy session for all of us. A group aversion therapy via podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right well in the meantime we would love to hear from you email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on twitter at allaboutthedame you can find Catherine at brobcat our facebook page is all about agatha and our instagram handle is at all about agatha please take a moment to rate and review us and we'll see you next time bye bye bye